This week, Tim Morris from Tanium is with us to discuss Tanium's data as a service concept. Then, in the enterprise security news, Cyberint raises $28 million for attack surface detection. RapidFort raises $8.5 million for pre-attack surface detection. We'll talk about it. Managing and monitoring your quantum devices. Making sure you don't lose access to your crypto wallets. All kinds of fun stuff in the news. IBM acquires Rendori. Contrast Security makes some of their tools free. Rumble adds some interesting new features. Again, Microsoft Defender for everyone and more there. Finally, we'll go to a pre-recorded segment from RSA where Chris Cleveland, CEO of Pixum, and Mehul Ravankar, VP Product Management at Qualys, will discuss stopping phishing attacks and a fresh approach to reducing cyber risk. All that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. CyberArk is at the forefront of demonstrating how identity security can help prevent and block a ransomware infection before it brings a business down. CyberArk offers protection along every aspect of the attack chain, from the initial intrusion all the way through data exfiltration. Whether you are proactively building your security program or need to restore trust in your IT environment, CyberArk has the experience to help. Learn how at securityweekly.com forward slash CyberArk. Imagine this scenario. You're out of the office unexpectedly and a colleague pings you because they need access to some system you have credentials for. Now, my listeners would never send passwords over email or Slack. But what about your coworkers? How many organizations out there are sending logins back and forth in plain text? Worse yet, how many just store all of their logins on a shared spreadsheet? Keeper Security's password management platform locks down logins, payment cards, and more in a patented zero-knowledge encrypted vault. Sign up for a Keeper free trial today. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Keeper. Is your team ready to defend against the latest cyber threats? Validate human cyber defense readiness with RangeForce. Sharpen your team's capabilities with a cloud-based platform that takes a real-world, continuous approach to cybersecurity skills development. RangeForce empowers cyber defense readiness at scale. With hundreds of interactive modules, learning paths mapped to industry frameworks, skill assessments, and team-based defensive threat exercises. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash RangeForce to learn more. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy hydration day. I actually left my my nice branded Yeti water bottle uh, somewhere in RSA and uh, elected not to pay the $50 uh, it, it would have taken in Lyft rides or Uber rides to go back and get it. So I get a nice new uh, Yeti mug here and uh, and I'm happy. It's a, it's a step up from the other one from 32 ounces to 46 ounces or something like that. It's a lot of water. So always stay hydrated, especially if you're talking for two hours straight on a podcast. This is episode 278, recorded on Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me is the master of marketing, the mayor of mayhem, uh, Tyler Shields. How are you feeling, Tyler? I am doing well, doing well. You should have told me you were missing one. I would have sent you a Jupiter One branded one immediately for you to use on every every show that you're on. You can still send it. Consider it done. <laughs> also joining us is the czar of zero trust, the captain of content, Katie Teitler. How are you, Katie? 
I am well, but I'm guessing I am not getting a Jupiter One Yeti bottle. <laughs> Are yeah, you, would I, you be allowed to? I, I'm afraid I'm sure not. I'd be no, allowed no, to, no, but I'm guessing you know there are certain people who might not want me to have it. I got a lead on them. Look you up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, join us June 29th for a webcast with Tyler Robinson and Bo Bullock to learn how to pivot into the world of crypto security. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash webcast to register with only your name and email. This is not a sponsored webcast, just stuff we're really interested in that we feel like the audience is also really interested in that uh, we want to geek out with, with you. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings at securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. All right, our first interview today is sponsored by Tanium, and Tim Morris joins us today to talk about breaking through traditional barriers with uh, product data as a service, and we'll, we'll explain what that means here in a bit. Tim spent over 20 years at Wells Fargo wearing all the hats there. Most recently, he led cyber threat engineering and research teams within the information and cybersecurity group within the bank. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, gl glad to have you here. I was looking at some of your your background, and I, I started out at US Bank's uh, credit card proce processor. So you know, I was getting flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody has uh, in cyber IT has conventional you know career paths. Often say some people choose their career, but often their career chooses them, and that was my case. Uh, blue collar guy I was in manufacturing and around the Y two K thing. They were asking me to uh, move to different places. The family wanted to stay here in North Carolina where we were at. So I looked and the largest employer in the area was a bank. So I took a Y2K um, product being Unix admin, took a Windows software packaging job, uh, knew nothing about it, not even sure how I got the job, but I got the job and actually became really good at it, which led into a career in reversing malware. Because if you can package and troubleshoot applications that are supposed to work that don't, you can figure out how malware works that shouldn't. So that's kind of where my cybersecurity uh, career started. Uh, it wouldn't be until 09 after the Wachovia Wells Fargo merger that I moved uh, into a management leadership role and did everything from managed multiple endpoint products, forensics teams, red teaming, um, all the, like you said, all the things. And it was a lot of fun. And just decided to retire last May, but didn't stay too retired long. Was doing some landscaping. It was a lot of work that my wife was making me do landscaping. <laughs> So I decided I need to go back to work to get some rest. So anyway, um, so, but I've, I've known about Tanium for a long time. I, we had uh, used it, uh, I'd used it extensively on over half a million endpoints. I uh, had a lot of success with it. So it was kind of a natural fit for me to come to Tanium uh, last year. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sounds like it. It's, um, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've got uh, so many stories you could tell, but uh, yeah, my, my path was similar. I was on the technical side at, at Elevon, you know, somebody gave, mm -hmm. again, not sure how I got that job. You know, somebody uh, gave me the, the opportunity and, you know, I had an aptitude for it. I wanted to learn everything and, uh, and yeah, just kind of worked my way from the IT side over to the security side and uh, yeah, eventually got uh, uh Tired of you know the same networks, the same the same walls, the same cubicle, and and moved into the consulting space myself, and eventually found my way to the vendor side as well. Right. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. And everybody who does this, you know, has to have a passion and curiosity, you know, to see how things, you know, work, how things get broken, how to fix them. You know, we're all problem solvers and it's just a natural fit for anybody in cybersecurity because you're trying to protect stuff. And oftentimes it's processes that are broken, you know, or, or trying to chase the, the vulnerabilities or, or, or chase the broken processes. And so it's just a natural fit for those of us that are so inclined to, you know, go figure out broken stuff. And, and make it work better. Give me a bit of an idea of your role there at Tanium. Are, are you on the sales facing side, you know, like, kind of like an advisory CISO or something like that, or, you know, sales engineering, or are you more on the customer success side of things? You know, how, a little bit how of both. We create, yeah, we created a globals and verticals and they brought me in to help advise with the financial services. So my official title is technology strategist, but they call me all kinds of things. like get CTO office of the CISO, so if I'm doing speaking at any conferences and those kind of things about different cybersecurity topics, uh, how to lead or manage, you know, a cybersecurity team or uh, how to build a cybersecurity program. So I kind of do consulting. It depends on where I'm at. We officially a few months ago moved into the sales org, but I was in a dual role, but I'm not, you know, I'm like, I'm not a commission, commission based employee on the sales side, but I do support the sales teams. I support the marketing teams, but I also do a lot with existing customers you know, which is a support role. So you can call that customer success. Tanium has a very, very rich account management, technical account management program. I mean, it's kind of founded on that. Um, we're deeply entrenched into our customers to help them be successful. Matter of fact, when I was a customer, my technical account managers were just as much a part of my team. They joined the team meetings. They were there for change controls on the weekend. I mean, they, they were heavily, heavily involved in our success, you know, to make it work. So, so my role is a bit varied. Again, I'll do some... Uh, like last week, I was speaking actually in the Fed space, uh, that kind of outside of financial services. But when you have done this for a long time in a large, complex network, those skills kind of parlay into multiple different industries, uh, verticals, as well as size. I think when I came here and they had me consulting with some small banks and I would get the scalability questions. Oh, yeah, that works great in the lab. But what on what about a thousand computers? And I'm used to working with, you know, half a million computers. So yeah, I, I kind of bless your yeah. heart. <laughs> exactly. It's computers. one of those things like, yes, I run software that will not run on a thousand computers. I run software that won't run on a hundred thousand computers. Some will, and they won't get to 250,000 computers. I mean, there's different nuances when you're managing infrastructures that large, just from an IT ops and engineering standpoint, not even getting into the security side of it, even though we all play a part in security. Uh, it's, you know, it's difficult. And every time you're deploying something large, besides just getting the scale itself, then you're dealing with the internal politics. I mean, at the bank, we had eight major lines of businesses, each one bigger than most businesses by the, you know, by themselves uh, outside. Uh, and then dealing in a highly regulated industry, you know, like banking, same would be with healthcare and government entities. Um, it, it creates an own, its own set of challenges. So sometimes it's very refreshing to get to what I would call small, and I don't mean to insult anybody, to a place that has, say, five to 30,000 endpoints, you know, where there it's like, no, that's, you know, if you're managing 5,000, there used to be an admin that managed a small, you know, you know, school of less than 1,000, and you get to that, it's, it's a big deal. But it's all relative. I mean, honestly, solving right. the problems is the same. It's just the types of problems look a little different, a little nuanced, and may take longer or different ways. You know, and of course, the bigger you get, the larger your attack surface gets. So right. that presents quite a bit of challenges for 
everyone, IT ops, your your SOCs, NOX, whatever acronym you use, we call it ours a fusion center. It presents a lot of a lot of challenges to have to manage. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that term. I think uh, Target was the first place I had heard that fusion center term. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember back in the day I was doing endpoint management and I'd I'd done a couple things. So first was uh, M&A activity, meaning the banks were notorious for doing acquisitions, but not merging. So they did the A part, paint the sign, then move on and never integrate or merge the systems. So I remember one of the first, when I got heavily involved in Active Directory and trying to do, doing like all the login scripts, all the startup scripts, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes even doing that in GPOs as a way to manage endpoints. Um, it, it was quite a chore. It took us three years, about 18 months of planning, 18 months of execution to collapse 280 NT4 domains into 180 forest. Um, so that's a lot of work, you know, to make that happen and, and, and get that, you know, going to, to everybody set up. And I'm sorry, I was going somewhere. What was the, the, the original question? Because that, that plays into it. Yeah, the fusion center, the term fusion, so the fusion center. center. Yeah. So what happened is then when we moved into security, our SOC was very, I would um, call it help base, meaning the metrics were measured on how many cases they got closed and the time to close a case. Well, that doesn't work in security. Um, you, you need to be able to get the thing. And we also suffer from this problem. And we'll get into this with this data broker or data as a service from visibility. So around 2012, we started had a new CISO come in and uh, really changed the game on how we did did things. At one point, there was talk of taking part of the, the bank, the security, running a separate company so they could operate under different rules to help protect the bank. And I'd heard other banks trying to do this. But the, the reason was was the visibility. Because you get into situations where you have somebody that owns a console and something and you can't see, you only see what they, they're allowing to give you. Or whether you're IT ops, you're trying to get patch data or you're you know, trying to get application logs you know, from somewhere else, it, it's just disjointed. So what happened is when we got a CISO that got the full board approval and board support, it's like we need to do cybersecurity right. And at this time, large banks were getting hammered with DDoS attacks. I mean, just you know, having outages and having to go through that stuff. You know, it took a, a couple of years, but we got through that. So they built a fusion center, which basically gave us the visibility we needed to be able to work with all lines of business, you know, break down those silos to be able to protect. You know, one of my mantras has always been no managed security. You can't secure what you don't manage. You can't manage what you don't know. And the problem in cybersecurity was we were told to go manage all this stuff, but we didn't know what's there. We're, we're relying on a CMDB that's broke, asset inventory systems that don't work, um, you know, dealing with the regulator stuff and auditors and, and all that kind of stuff and didn't have that. So when you build a fusion center, which is what, you know, very trendy at the time and still is, I think a lot of companies are still doing that, is you make sure you get representation from everyone so that they're in the same place. Um, and it also helps with incident response. I know we we were talking on a, on a pre-call, uh, this phrase, you know, train like you fight, fight like you train. And that is when you're doing your C-certs, yes, you do the tabletops every quarter. We would do twice a year these war games where we would bring people together. And it would not just be the fusion center itself. Yeah, they would have key representation, but it would be folks from 
say network security or folks from line of businesses, we would have a hundred people in the, in our huge auditorium playing out these war games, running, running them over 24 hours. That's when the clock started. We had plenty of prep time and then we had debrief time afterwards to see and test our systems, you know, meaning test our people, test our processes. Cause yeah. when you're in the heat, no, you're, you're being packed. Yeah. It's you're hitting rough. on one of my favorite things here. This, this is uh, uh, something I love to talk about, about, uh, I often say, I often think is uh, IR training like like a sport. Like if you just yes. do the one annual test at PCI or whatever regulation requires from you, mm-hmm. you you're not going to be very good at the game. <laughs> you know, when it comes you're time not. to play for real, yeah. No, you have to get against the goal line and try to defend the goal line multiple times and see if you can go all four downs, right? And you're yeah. not going to do that in a tabletop. But when you get in a room and you know. People get heated, personalities show up, you find out who your good leaders are, you find out people you know some of your best technical people are, and you learn the camaraderie because you're sitting there in a safe environment, you're watching data go out. So yeah. you got to breach, how are you going to stop that attack, you know, prevent that attack? And we would change the games up. So I'm not, <laughs> I remember the worst one everybody got the maddest about was they started the game with, they already had the golden ticket. And so oh, you're-, yeah. you're you're going for half a day trying, oh, it's this person. Oh, we got rid of them. Oh, now it's this account. <laughs> you know, you're going all day long. So what do you do in that? Because sometimes you're in a prevent mode. Sometimes you're in a detect and respond mode. Sometimes you're just in a triage mode. And you have to understand yeah. all those because the playbooks, go back to your sports analogy, if you haven't played, you know, the two-minute drill, you know, or you haven't played what the opening, you know, set of plays are going to be. Uh, it's not going to be there. And the nice thing was we would graduate those um, those tests. Some were just simple, you know, discovery. Some were lateral movement. Some were actual, mm-hmm. you know, code injections. They, you know, then there were actual breaches where data. I remember one we stopped. Yeah. Um, it was like, an, I don't know, eight gigs were going out. We got it after about the first 300 megs, you know, catching it, which is kind of exhilarating. It's like, wow, that's bad that that much got. But the fact you actually caught it in seconds. Yeah. You know, versus most time breaches you discover days or weeks and you've learned they've been in there for weeks. So that kind of training and having that whole fusion center mindset that everybody's a part of it and understanding who the players are going to be and what's going to happen. Because it's not just the security practitioners. You know, you've got to get your executives in line of businesses. What are we going to do for a press release? You know, who are we going to call to say, hey, this is going to go, you know, handle this part of it. Yeah, it's it's no right. different almost than problem management. You know, we do this with DR and BCP tests and sometimes we not as good as we, we do them better now because they have to have the same rigor on not just paper if we shut down a data center. No, we're going on a Saturday morning, we're going to actually shut one down. Right. And right. see if everything yeah, moves no, A DR test where you haven't actually thrown the switch, uh, yes. you can bank on maybe having 50% of things right. Yeah, and it's tough. And you learn so much stuff. I have the... This saying oh, yeah. lately, I've been talking about binoculars and mirrors. So from a cyber standpoint, we always use binoculars, We're always looking for intel. You find out what the latest breach or latest attack or breach is, and you focus in on it, right? Matter of fact, you can actually develop your red team operations based upon the latest nation state thing that's going on. Yeah, it's good to understand the actors and the motives and that kind of stuff, but you need to understand the methodologies the TTPs are using to do it. But then you have to take those binoculars and turn it into a mirror. And look at yourself and say, hey, we need to do this same thing. For example, a supply chain attack. Let's let's do a supply chain attack against ourselves, you know, zero announce, whatever it's going to be, whatever the parameters the organization has. 
and doing those things while you know they're fun for a while then they're hard for a while because you get into some really heated discussions because people don't like to be told their baby's ugly you know you know that we got to fix the problem but when you get to that in that situation like a red blue team partnership where everybody is playing the same game to win it only benefits the entire organization and each person i mean the people whose careers were advanced the most and did the most were folks who were in the middle of those fights and learning the most and and did learn meaning they didn't take their toys and go home even though they may have got mad in the heat of the battle they actually used it to learn to train like you said in your sports analogy you know they're 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 in the weight room a little more you know they're doing a few more sprints yeah Yeah, but from a technical standpoint let's use that as a let's pivot into the the topic uh the the core topic of the conversation you know certainly you know, I, I imagine with a lot of those acquisitions, there there are a lot of kind of us and them kind uh, you know political situations and, yes. and emotions. You know, when when you have to learn learn to play with others and work with other groups mm-hmm. and give them access to data that you wouldn't typically give them access to. Right. But you you came up with this concept of you know, Tatium gathers some really useful data. You know, and I'll, I'll let you explain it, but you know, I understand that the TLDR of it is is wh- why not share that? Why not leverage that? Uh, you know, in other groups, other products, other uh, scenarios outside of the, right. the actual tuning product, right? So every organization has problems with these silos, and usually it comes down to a, a, a data power situation. Folks like their console, they want to keep on it. They have power of the data, they have power of decisions. But what you, what ends up happening is you're in a situation where you're trying to make decisions. And what Tanium does is Tanium is an agent-based solution that's on every endpoint. And the architecture, the way it works is super, super fast. And I'm not saying it because I work for, I, I mean, I wish I would have had this, you know, in 03 to 05. I didn't get it till 2013. The fact is that I can ask a question across a half a million endpoints and have the answer back in under two minutes now changes my path on how it is I'm going to proceed. So whether that's a zero day announcement, okay, is this a problem or not? I can check immediately. Okay, do I have a problem? If you look at supply chain like struts, you know, or log4j, the fact that I can go with confidently ask all my machines and say, yes, I know for confident, here's where the issue is. I remember with struts, we didn't have the full capability. We got it in about three weeks. We had to write a lot of stuff, meaning as a customer, we used Tanium to manage that. We got that data. But then a few weeks, a couple months later, when WannaCry happened, I, I knew immediately within 15 minutes, I was telling the senior leadership, we only have a problem with these 3,500 machines, get these taken care of. We don't work this weekend. You know, which is a big difference when you're doing security. It's also a big difference when you're in the middle of an attack and there's a lateral movement. Or one of my favorite scenarios or stories is when the CISO called me on a Sunday afternoon. He had gotten an alert from, I can't remember which agency, that says, hey, there's a rogue version of Putty out there and it's the number two download link. Can you tell if it's there? Well, yeah, I can go to the proxy logs. I can go to my recorder and see that, hey, 12 people downloaded this. But then with Tanium, I could ask, all 500,000 machines of those, can't remember, it's about two thirds of that Windows machines because that was the software. And know that of those 12, yes, I could verify that it was downloaded, but only seven of them actually ran it. And of those seven of them, I could go back and track and see, you know, because the rogue version, what it was doing was taking your credentials and your one-time password or your token and sending it to a .ru domain. 
fortunately that was blocked so it couldn't send that but the fact is i could confidently within minutes say i know exactly where it's at and i can get it taken care of the same thing if you're in the middle of ir and you see something and you think okay that looks weird well it might look weird on that box but what if you ask 400,000 other boxes right if they're seeing it right. and if you don't see it anywhere else you're like okay this is a problem but if you see it 10,000 other times like okay that's a probably a poorly written application in like a screen scrape app or something like that and then you know what to do that intel changes your decision process you know on how you do it so that's that's what's hap happening and i would get so having all this data and lines of businesses would come to me and i would say you've got x number of versions of java this many of them are vulnerable and they were like no we don't and then we would get into this debate but i could show because i could they say well you're dealing with old data i went no i don't the data has 10 minutes old i mean that's how and then what ended up happening is those is it's not i don't want to be combative it's like i'm i'm trying to help you so i want to give you the data so we would set up you know these these jobs these feeds i had like over 130 feeds that would go to you know splunk elastic SQL, no SQL, you know, just send them the data that they wanted so they could take on action on all the time. What it benefited me is I didn't have to train 200 people to get into the console. You know, I could just set the job up and just send the data. So that's what I call data as a service. Oftentimes when people come ask you for something, right. it's like in a, a restaurant. I, I use this farmer chef analogy a lot. So if you go to a restaurant, you don't ask for a, a list of 10 ingredients. No, you ask for a prepared meal. Lines of businesses often come to you and they're asking for this prepared meal. Tell me everything's available in my environment, you know, but they want it completely enriched. Like, where is it at? Yeah. You know, how long do I have that kind of stuff? And oftentimes, if you start doing that, you start wearing the chef's hat, you can never get to all the people asking for these meals. But as a farmer, right. you can give them all the ingredients they need to go make the meal themselves. So yeah. that's where I looked as Tanium is that I was a super fast uh, digital data harvester. My biggest challenge, what even a challenge, because it takes you know less than 10 minutes to set up one of these feeds, is to distribute that data in a timely way and then set up our OLAs or SLAs to make sure, you know, if they're getting 300 megs average every day, if it drops down to 10, what happened, or they don't get feeds, or, or they have some acknowledgement thing back that they actually got. So you're dealing more now with maturing an automated process versus tackling the problem of not having the data to make the decisions for your, you know, whatever your organization or your line of business is. So you're the HelloFresh of cybersecurity data. It's what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I did. I did have to take some of my teams and and actually do these test recipes. I remember during struts getting a heated conversation, and they basically just wanted a red green report. Just show me where I said I I don't have because red so what, what i would do is when i send the data i do my best to avoid putting the business logic in there because if i'm writing right. content and with tanium writing content is very easy to do it's super extensible if you know a scripting you, you language a you know, bash shell powershell python bb script you if you can do it on one computer you can do it on hundreds of thousands of computers it's super easy to do yeah. so but if i put logic in there that kind of enriches that and sends it down so version two is good now but then, you know, we know how many bad patches get released, but now version three is, is good. Two is bad having to go change that. But by doing the hello, you know, by doing the, the, the farmer thing, we could change the business logic on how the data is filtered and normalized after the fact. 
and I don't have to change how fast they're getting the data, whatever cadence that is. Sometimes they just need stuff once a week. Other times, like we sent patching data every four hours, um, you know, still do. So, and then if we're in the middle of an incident where it really matters and we're trying to track remediation because there's a critical vulnerability and we have 72 hours to get it fixed, we might be sitting there refreshing that data, you know, more than every four hours because minutes count, you know, especially if there's an imminent threat or there's an active yeah, exploit going IR on. use cases. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Uh, I but think Katie for normal day to day, yeah, we're sending question it out. For you. So the data is the key, obviously. You got to get the data to be able to, to make smart decisions. Um, but if we step back a bit, you're an agent-based solution. And given the way our world works today, given how many endpoints can be in an organization, how can you ensure that the agent is everywhere it needs to be, especially when we're dealing with a work from anywhere environment, we're dealing with OT environments in some cases, how can you ensure that the agents aren't malfunctioning or, or broken in some way? Because that's a that's a challenge. So how does Tanium deal with that? Yeah, very good question. And dealing with agent fatigue is, is a real thing, a real problem. I remember one of the uh, IT ops people came to me and I still remember this line. Why don't security just buy the endpoints and let us lease time for them to use them to do our jobs? And that was more of a kind of a jab, you know, towards security. So first of all, uh, yeah, we, we had to solve that problem. Number one, the agent itself is extremely robust. Um, it works in a linear chain method, so it knows which machines near it, you know, have the agent and which ones don't have the agent. We then, uh, obviously through deployment, I always start with any agent, we, we bake it into the golden image to make sure it's there. And then we do two different things. So in a server world where it's even, you know, it's critical in both, but in a server world, you get to a place where an automated uh, solution so that we would create problem tickets if a machine uh, did not report in with Tanium for 24 hours. You know, we take data from every system we have, whether that was other security controls or tools, because we could use Tanium to track where those were through uh, another asset inventory tool. And then Tanium, we would send those in and would timestamp them. And then within, if they didn't have one, 24 hours, we would create a ticket that automatically went to the person. And I can tell you that that works. It sounds like a lot of work it is, but once you get it done, you can confidently say, I know we're on 99.9% .9 of all the servers. And then when we weren't on one, it was because they followed a decommission process that wasn't part of policy. On the workstation side, it's a little bit different because you've got so much churn, especially in a large organization where you can be reimaging several thousand machines a week. So we did those reconciliations on a weekly basis, you know, to determine, you know, what's, you know, what's there. And but we had to put the time in to get the process set up. But once we set the process up, you can automate it. But it is is a big deal. To your other point, this worked from anywhere. When COVID hit. That most of the tools, you know, we, we were starving bandwidth. So you have some other software deployment tools that can only distribute their VP, uh, through VPN traffic, and that would get choked. Well, with Tanium, having in a large organization legacy, you know, on-prem, there's a way we set that up so they can answer. Now, with the cloud offering we have, there there's basically zero infrastructure. So it doesn't matter if that machine is, is sitting at home or at a hotel or a coffee shop. We can still see that machine and still do not just get information from it, we can take action. I, I remember having to do multiple things like distribute forensics tools or handle offboarding or terminations, getting to that machine to do that. But to your point, it's very, very um, agent health. However, I will say 
having managed multiple other tools that had hundreds of servers just to run and try to figure out the orphan situation is what I call it. With Tanium, that's super, super easy. I mean, very few people were doing that for our entire organization. And in the cloud offering, it's it's even less because you're not having to worry about the, you know, the infrastructure on the server side. How many people in a, you know, modest enterprise would it take to manage this? It depends on how creative you want to be because you can end up taking a lot of roles. I mean, I have seen enterprises, you know, doing it with one to two people and they wish they had three. I started it with three people, but I also expanded the service offering where I was doing this data as a service. So it grew because again, with Tanium, you can write your own content. So while we have hundreds of sensors and packages that can just do this stuff for you, sometimes in a large organization, you want to get creative, like we're doing some config management stuff. And so this application needs different type of sensors and those kind of stuff. So I grew that team uh, quite a bit, you know, six or seven people, but you got to remember it's a half a million endpoints, um, over 300,000 employees and contractors. So still relatively small. My joke was I could point to other teams other than I formally managed that would take, you know, 10 people to run that I could do with two people just because the Tanium infrastructure itself is super small. I mean, I ran an AV product that took 120 servers to manage 300,000 endpoints. With Tanium, I could do half a million endpoints with basically two core servers and about a half a dozen uh, zone servers that basically acted as proxies. Wow. So that, that's quite a force multiplier. <laughs> it's, it's a huge difference. It also makes it easier when you're doing change controls, you know, because uh, you're only dealing. I had a, I had a three prong system. So we had a primary, well, actually two primary, we call them primary and secondary, but they were both load balancing everything. And then a third cold standby for our DR test that we would bring in. And it is huge. That's a huge difference from going managing AV vendor where I had, I, we, did, we started with 120. I did optimize it down to 70 servers, but it takes almost five people just to manage that and all the version certification testing you have to do. Um, it's always why I like the Tanium Cloud offering and, and every vendor is moving to this is that whole certification process. Because when you're doing change controls, I don't care if you're an IT ops engineer or security engineer, um, it's supposed to be muscle memory, right? You're, you're supposed to go in there. This is what I expect to happen. You've done your testing. You've, you've done all this stuff and you do it and you get out. And I was fortunate in that the team I had, well, one, it was one of the disciplines I required them to follow all the time, is that if it's not muscle memory, it's like go back to our sports analogy. You know, you're not going to show up on game day or worse yet, championship day, and you've never been to a practice. You know, you don't know the playbook. You don't know what's going on. You should know. Now, granted, things are going to go wrong in production. They just do. But because you know it confidently enough, you know when to back out. You know, when to go, okay, we need to back this change out. Here's the process. And then given from a leadership standpoint, given your engineers the flexibility and the confidence to know that they can do that. You know, I trust you. You're going to get it. You need to get it done. If something happens, we have to pull out. You know, we're going to explain, you know, what's going on and what we'll, we'll do it the next time. But yes, it, when you when you're dealing with that much and your infrastructure is so small, such a small percentage, it, it's it's huge. <laughs> That's why when people figured it out, you know, I, I didn't have a turnover problem. Matter of fact, people would always want to come to the team because and when we would bring people over to the team, they would see how we were doing stuff. They were like, wow. We had three people manage 800 servers for these four applications. We could have done all of that with, with less than one person with Tanium because the tool was there. But again, back to our data broker, data as a service, 
when you have access to that data, and typically what I've seen in an organization, people have these feudal kingdoms, they have their fiefdoms that they want control or power, and that's a political issue. You have to have good leadership that recognizes that and will address it when it happens. But you can break down a lot of politics and a lot of uh, silos between these organizations if you just share what you know. It goes back to what you learned in kindergarten. You know, if yeah. you just share it, put it and do it responsibly, you make sure you have SLAs and OLAs, you have your RBAC controls set up the way they're supposed to be. So, you know, nobody accidentally gets themselves in troubles or, or does something, you know, they shouldn't do. But by doing that data as a service, it's um, it'll mature an organization. It, it liberates an organization. I remember Wells Fargo, I mean, everybody remembers in, in the news quite a bit, but I remember one of the regulatory things, one of the most stressful times, it took me two weeks to get people to agree. Fortunately, I had leadership above me that was helping with this to even agree on what we're count, counting, meaning we're going to report to the regulators all security controls and the protection on all of them for all perimeter devices. And they couldn't agree on what a perimeter device was. You know, an endpoint with email is essentially on the perimeter. And because we have no edge anymore, you know, we don't, you know, the, the endpoints, the edge, I've heard it said the browser is the edge, actually every application the edge, hence the legacy zero trust and network is moved into zero trust. You know, we got to authenticate the process, the application, the person, the machine, all of it, you know, to be able to do zero trust correctly. But it goes back to these philosophical discussions of definitions of what words are. And it took us three weeks to get to the denominator. But when I told, when everybody agreed, this is what we're counting, and this is what everybody's gonna report to. Uh, I use this saying, raise your hand if you're not here. If somebody comes and says, hey, I'm 96% patched, I would say 96% patched of what? Because according to what I see, you're 68% patched. And they would go, no, uh, 96. I went, well, first of all, you don't cover this many machines and of the patches that you're covering, you didn't, um, you're only counting the ones that are certified. And from where I sit, the attackers don't care. That doesn't mean it's a bad grade. It means that leadership, the board needs to know we've got a gap and we need to figure out how to put mitigating controls around these things that this agent won't cover or this tool doesn't cover or we have a, just a sloppy process gap that they're not getting installed and turned on all the time and nobody's monitoring it correctly and those kind of things. So when you get to that denominator, again, that requires solid real-time data, near real-time data that everybody can trust in and not a spreadsheet from 30 or 60 days ago that has gone through five or six hands and nobody knows if it's true or accurate anymore. That's what it requires to get to that maturity level to have this data as a service uh, that, that everybody benefits from. Well, I, I had some other questions, Tim, but you answered them uh, in the midst oh. of that. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. No, it's it's uh, it's hugely helpful. Like I, I I remember the first time we got a sim on the enterprise side, and one of the questions you answered was um, when IT realized that we had the system with all the logs centralized in it. Anytime they would have any kind of uh, downtime or outage or anything like that, they turned to us to do root cause analysis. And, and we couldn't do security work, you know, because this would happen so often. They basically co-opt us uh, to do right. that work. So I think you gave some some good guidance there on on how organizations can can provide the data, you know, like the again that the HelloFresh model, not the yep. shit, like I'm going to give you the ingredients, but you're still going to do the prep. You're still going to cook work. it yourself. 
And that's, that happens all the time, not just with uh, incident response, with attacks and zero days. It happens with IT ops and outages. And what ends up happening, like you said, you get co-op because then your best people get sucked into doing that. And, you know, the old adage, teach a person how to fish. You've got to put processes in that enables people to be able to do what it is, you know, that they they can do um, and, and, and look out for that. So, yeah, that's a, we see that now. I mean, the, one of the advising and consulting I'm doing right now, uh, I see that a lot. You know, it's just people that, you know, they're get, their best people get co-op and they can't move forward because they're always fighting fires, you know, and that's another part of this. You know, you can't. Yeah, we do have to fight fires, but oftentimes we have security controls that are broken. It's like having fire trucks that don't work. And you don't want to figure out the fire truck doesn't work, you know, when the fire right. happens. When you need so it. you got to be testing those <laughs> controls all the time. And you're, you can use this data and broker that data to make that happen, you know, if you set it up correctly. Well, Tim, uh, this is excellent. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today on Enterprise Security Weekly. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And anybody can just reach out to me, um, tim.morrisatanium, or go check out our website. There's plenty of information there. We'd love to talk to you if you're trying to get through this. You know, not just, again, it's about you cannot make the best decisions come from the best intel. And that intel is from fresh data, not from what you got 30 days ago. True words. You can also visit securityweekly.com forward slash tanium to learn more and stick around. We'll be back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. Picture your team being able to map out the external attack surface as it grows and see the same attack vectors as a hacker does. Most tools out there do asset discovery, but stop there. Enter Detectify. It takes an inventory of exposed web assets and automates vulnerability testing for security misconfigurations, expiring subdomains, and risks in third-party software. Here's the cool part. They crowdsource payloads from leading ethical hackers. It finds bugs you actually want to fix and finds them in time. Start a free two-week trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Detectify. Go hack yourself. Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with extra hop network detection and response and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how extra hop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. That's extra H-O-P. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. And it is time for the Enterprise Security Weekly News. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash ESW278 if you want to check out the stories. Uh, probably not going to get to all of them today. Uh, again, a ton of them here. 
Uh, not even half of them funding, though. Uh, we, we do have some funding items, but uh, not nearly as many as we've had in the past. And uh, But before we jump in here, I just want to give some shout-outs to some of the newsletters that, I, that helped me gather this stuff. Uh, I found some really good sources for news, and it's really cut down the amount of time it takes me to find some good stories for us to cover. And one of those is Security Funded by Mike Prevett. Uh, he's at returnonsecurity.com. And he does a really good job of collecting all the funding uh, announcements and all the acquisition announcements. Previously, the newsletters I used for that were, were general VC stuff. So I would have to search through there for keywords to try and find all the security items. Uh, but he does all that work for me now. So I, I just I subscribe to the security funded newsletter and that makes it way easier for me. Uh, and then the uh, Risky Business News, which uh, the prolific Caitlin Kimpanu compiles for Risky Business. Um, I think he was previously at the register, uh, puts that together, and, and really good stuff in there. It's a little bit of everything. You get some industry stuff. You get uh, you know some hacks, you, you know, cybercrime, that kind of stuff. Uh, so really good newsletters in there that I highly recommend. All right. And anything that strikes you guys that we should start out with here? Or should we just start from the top? I'm sorry. You're going to have to wait for me. I'll be back in a minute. I'm actually updating my newsletter feeds to include the awesome newsletters you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah, security funded. I, I think you'll really like he has like graphs and totals by segment. He, he does a lot of good work yeah. with that. I actually know Mike, uh, Mike Prevett's down here in the North Carolina area. I think he's closer to Charlotte. Um, so actually I've been communicating with him since his idea stage for that, that newsletter. I'm glad oh, to nice. see it's picking up traction. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's action. getting to the point where I, I don't know if he's doing it full time yet, but it seems like he's getting close. I've, I've chatted with him a lot about it, but yeah, it's huge. Yeah, the, whole content creation thing is, uh, the whole content creation thing is becoming real within the cybersecurity world. We just had um, on our, on our podcast that I do on the side, we had Daniel Measler from unsupervised oh, yeah. learning on recent. We had Clint Gibbler from um, um, TLDR. TLDR yeah. Um, we're having additional um, influencers coming in the next couple of shows. This, this cyber content creation stuff's real. It's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. It's been interesting watching uh, Meisler, uh because he had the whole, like, uh, some kind of subscription service, right? Yeah, they're both, I think, doing more subscription service. Daniel's leaning in for sure. The interesting thing, I mean, we did a background story on on Daniel Meisler and unsupervised learning. He's started unsupervised learning essentially in 1996 as a dumping ground for all of his own personal musings and brain content. That's where it started. And so he has 20 plus years of interesting content creation that he's now finally getting to the point where he's monetizing. Talk about the long the long haul. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, looking at the stories here, uh, there's a lot of attack surface management. So CyberInt raises $28 million. That's story number one there. Uh, they, I believe there's attack surface management. I did not test them when I tested a bunch of these companies, and I don't remember why I did not select them to, to test. But that's they, a really hot area. Cyber Threat Intelligence. So it's What's data that? harvesting, uh, dark web data harvesting, and an autonomous analysis. So it, it bumps into attack surface, but it's almost like a, a hybrid of 
vulnerability, threat intelligence, etc. Uh, with with attack surface management. Yeah, so so it's pretty. I, I actually I consider the yeah. So the dark web intelligence is basically what 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 I refer to as data leak detection. You know, so you're you're looking for anything on the on the dark web that matches something that should be secret or proprietary data for you, like you know, an email address with your company's domain with a leaked password, for example. So using ha- have I been pwned uh, fits into that category, for example. Um, digital shadows fits into that category, uh, you know, and it varies how sophisticated they get here. Like uh, Terbium Labs was was a crazy approach where they would actually collect all this dark web and dark net data, and then they would hash it all. Like not even at the file level, but at the pieces of, of data and files. And then they would do that with all your internal data. Uh, and so they'd have these two massive databases, this uh, stuff that's been exposed externally you know, from uh, private forums where they sell this data, from Tor, from all these different places. Uh, and then they'd try and do matches on your own proprietary data to see if anything's leaked, which uh, I think they got acquired by somebody. Yeah, I, I you know, remember. it's interesting, though, really what you're talking about is more threat intel style stuff. And I think that's kind of what Katie was getting at. Attack surface management doesn't necessarily have to um, take into account threat intel stuff, although some of it tends to. Uh, but ASM, um, attack surface management, is literally about discovering what that attack surface could and should look like, not necessarily even mapping, <laughs> excuse me, threat intel uh, to that surface. Um, and so what I'm seeing it's really interesting right now is kind of a merging of a few different markets, right? The EASM markets, external attack surface management, which yeah. are your for Randori's and others that are essentially looking at it from a hacker's vantage point, a scanner's vantage point, if you will. Um, yeah. The internal cyber asset management market, which is the Axoniuses, the Jupiter Ones, the um, the folks like that, that look at everything from an internal vantage point and, and discover everything you have through um, kind of more of a um, informed, fully informed model, again, somewhat akin to like static analysis versus dynamic analysis, if we take those back to the AppSec days. And then what we're seeing is actually a bit of an overlay of some of the threat intel feeds into both of those uh, spaces. I see all of that stuff unifying. It's got to unify soon. And it just has to kind of come into one thing. The other thing you could really throw into the mix here, and uh, I just had a long conversation with an XDR analyst on this exact topic, is XDR is a similar vantage point. It's just endpoint derived instead of cloud derived. Uh, and it's basically discovering your attack surface from an endpoint vantage point is what a lot of the XDR people are even starting to merge some of their messaging into. I'm not as clean on that one. I don't love that one. But it's just such a weird combination of markets that are starting to pull together for cloud-centric security. Well, it's interesting. It's like I was doing some testing of Palo Alto's XDR product. And at a minimum for Cortex XDR, they want you to have endpoint data, cloud data, and uh, network data. So from like a firewall uh, in there. And, and then they had the identity pieces and other pieces you could add to it. But at a bare minimum, and, and, and none of those were... Um, prioritized over others, you would have cloud data, endpoint data, and firewall data in there. Yeah. It, it, Katie, uh, I, 
Yeah, Tyler, I, I totally agree with you. I think this is this is a tricky space because there are a lot of terms that are being merged and a lot of things are adjacent and it's part of a bigger picture. I think probably at some point things will have to converge. I don't know if that becomes XDR or if it becomes something else. Um, but looking at this, I wouldn't call it threat intelligence solely. I wouldn't call it external digital risk management solely or vulnerability management solely, but it, it encompasses all of those things. I would say it's less attack surface management than it is threat management or vulnerability management. Yeah, so there, let, let me break down some of the use cases that I've seen when I've when I've tested a bunch of these products. So, you know, kind of the core of what I think of as external attack surface management is what Tyler was talking about, is the, I give you my company name and you tell me what, what's out there that, that could hurt me. Like I, there was one product I tested that would check and see if you had any mobile apps that used your brand or your company names. You know, and, and sure enough, I found that there's a dedicated security weekly uh, Android app, which I, I had no idea that existed. <laughs> you know, but I was testing it on CRA stuff and that, and that came up. Um, but yeah, there's that stuff, you know, tell you if you've got this abandoned brochure server or, you know, like uh, subdomain takeovers, that kind of stuff. But then there's also digital risk protection you know, which is more uh, detecting misuse of the brand. Somebody, you know, uh, like the most common misuse of a brand that you'd be looking for is somebody setting up phishing infrastructure. You know, maybe it's like a subtle misspelling of, of your company's name uh, for a new domain that somebody just registered and they're just now setting up the infrastructure uh, to start a phishing campaign. So that's kind of its own category. You see like CyberInt is in that category. Uh, Risk IQ is real uh, was real big in that category as well. And then you've got the, uh, the leak stuff, you know, so any of my employees, you know, have, have their creds been stolen? Uh, you know, has my company had any creds get stolen? Has any of my data leaked? Like if you look at GitGuardian, they're just looking for credentials in code bases. You know, they're just looking in Bitbucket, GitLab, and uh, the, the paid for GitHub. Private GitHub, right? And just just looking for API keys and hard coded credentials. And I consider all of that oh. stuff external attack surface. But there's all these little subcategories. You you are 100 percent right. But I want to pull us back to a very important point: the fact that you found that Enterprise Security Weekly or the Security Weekly mobile app by Android. Was there any risk to that mobile app? Because it's right there, installed on my phone. So I need to know if this is a bad thing. Viewers want to know. No, there there weren't any critical risks in it. There were some like outdated libraries in it because it's it's actually we don't create it. It's auto created for us by a third party that we use, and it's just part of the wow. service for for using Libsyn, which is which is that third party that we use. Is they generate that out? Got it. I feel so much safer now as I'm clicking uninstall. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You can listen to us in any podcast. I don't know why you need a, a, a dedicated <laughs> app for that. But, uh, but yeah, the, the actual publisher on it was Libsyn, uh, you know, if, if you go and, and look at it in the App Store. Um, so an interesting thing here, uh, and this is kind of the – my number three story is almost like trying to avoid the security debt and the tech debt in the first place. 
You know, so they call it attack surface management, which is confusing because what they're doing is they're looking to strip stuff out of through your code pipeline, your CI/CD pipeline, looking for stuff that doesn't actually get used in your app and stripping it out for you or recommending that you take the stuff out where you've got extra libraries, extra functionality in there. That's just extra attack surface. that's going to cause you pain. So why not get it out of there? It, at least and that's, this that's is rapid fort. Rapid fort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like a, a good idea. I think one of the problems is we're, you know, we're seeing so many uses of different types of terms that it makes it confusing. It certainly makes it confusing for buyers. You know, we're sitting here debating terms, and I guarantee you if you ask some of our listeners what they thought of these terms, you'd get slightly different answers from almost everybody. And and it's really hard, I think, as a buyer to try to navigate the the vendor market when you are looking for products when this happens. It's it's not necessarily the vendor's fault just on their own. I could, you know, and, oh, my video went away. Sorry about that. Um it, there are many, many things that contribute to this problem. Um, but the fact of the matter is this may or may not be a tax service management, but the premise yeah. behind it is still valid. Yes. So this exact same feature, or, or not this exact same feature, but a similar feature, and I forget if it was TwistLock or Aqua, uh, one of you might remember, had a feature where you could run your containers in, in like a test environment and it would keep track of what got used in that container. So say if if Netcat got used but not with the dash L flag, then when it was in production, you couldn't use the dash L flag. You know, so basically it locked down and kind of made, made your, your container immutable to only the things that were used when you were training the, you know, uh, execution model for it, for lack of a better better term. So like if there was some kind of vulnerable library in there, but you didn't use it, there'd be no way to exploit it in production because it would prevent execution uh, or, or any use of that library because it, when you trained it, it didn't get used. So a little bit different. It doesn't actually strip it out, doesn't get rid of it. But, uh, and I can't, again, I can't remember if that was TwistLock or Aqua would prevent you from using anything that wasn't used when you trained it. Yeah, I'm more concerned not necessarily with how the functionality operates in this particular case because I think it's serving a need and it's interesting and it could be potentially useful. I just think that the marketing is not very good for it because it's not attack surface. You're blending markets that make no sense whatsoever. You're blending a term used for not even remotely close to AppSec and trying to hijack it into AppSec. I just think it's um, a pretty poor marketing execution on that side of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard. It's definitely, I, I recommend uh, running this kind of stuff by an analyst or, or, or somebody that knows the market well. Um, you know, just send your story to us. We'll cover it. <laughs> if you do it badly, <laughs> we'll, it's a service we provide. Yeah, and speaking of uh, stuff that uh, marketing uh, press releases that need help, number seven uh, the title of this is Cryptos Raises U.S. Uh, so, so right there, there's there's a key that this is somebody that's uh, you know maybe not a native English speaker or not uh, in, in the U.S. They they put U.S. before the the dollar sign. So it says U.S. 3.1 million to address sensitive data breach. 
And to my native English ears, what that sounds like is they're raising money to pay for a breach that they had, that they experienced. But what they're actually trying to say, (laughs) what they're actually trying to say is that they're a vendor that does data security, data protection, and they can prevent your sensitive data from being breached. But that's not at all what this title reads like. I have more sympathy for this than I do for the pilfering of terms. Yes. Oh, no, there goes my camera again. Sorry, guys. Um, I I, I have more sympathy for this, Yeah, for sure. No, I... I'm not saying I don't and, have sympathy. Look, I mean, just, they have a reasonable, reasonable raise here, three point one million. At least they're, you know, they're trying, but maybe they're not at, you know, professional PR stage. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a seed round. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, three point one. I mean, could be anything. We, we've got rounds here that are just all over the place. Uh, you know, in both stage and and amount, but uh, yeah, they, they're pretty early stage. And they are definitely part of this kind of this new emergence we're seeing of data security companies that are kind of taking another stab at, at you know, DLP is going to be a component of this uh, doing you have to detect or you have to discover the data first. Uh, and then once you get to that classification or categorization, you know, that that's where I'm, I'm kind of eager to see how these companies do because the last round did not do well in terms of false positives when trying to classify information using any kind of automated means. So very interested to see how these companies do. But yeah, uh, Spanish speaking, primarily Spanish speaking company. Uh, So very cool to see. I, I work for a company that's headquartered out of Latin America. So very cool to see more companies headquartered out of Latin America or at, they're actually headquartered in California, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, California. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. The, the, the culture doesn't necessarily stop at political borders. Right. (laughs) Um, Let's see what else here is worth talking about. So number five was a weird one. Uh, I have no idea what to do with this. Uh, I'll read the, you know, the subtitle here is uh, Global Venture Capital Funds Invest in Kitchener-Waterloo-based Quantum Safe Cybersecurity Company to Propel Product Development and Grow International Sales. That's not exactly what I wanted to read. They had a synopsis of the product, and it was something about discovering and managing your quantum products like people just have like this quantum product sprawl problem or something like that like it was it was the way it kind of sounded i remember years ago when i was running the the content and the speakers for infosec world we had a speaker and this is going back sometime who year after year kept submitting a talk on quantum and the committee the selection Mm -hmm. committee for talks just kept saying we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I just want to keep saying that um, when I read this yeah. press release. You know, great idea. We're not ready. Yeah. I mean, 
the quote on their website says, quantum computers are coming and all our they digital are. infrastructures are vulnerable. What they mean is potentially will be vulnerable because they're coming. They're not here yet. Right. I mean, uh, there, there, there probably is a big future for this. It's just not here yet. I don't know. Are, are there companies out there using quantum? Like, I, I know IBM has a service, uh, quantum computer service, and you can, you don't have to own the quantum computer, you know, just like, uh, you know, uh, IAS or SAS or PASS model, basically, you're, you're just Cass? renting time. How do, you, how do you pronounce that? CAS? Quas? <laughs> oh, with a Q? Quantum yeah. computer as a service? Yeah, what, I, I mean, however, whatever the acronym is, you can rent time mm. on, on a quantum computer, but I don't know of anybody that has their own on, on their own networks, you know, that, that actually own these and are using them beyond like random, you know, sources of entropy. I've, I've seen quantum products for uh, random number generation for, for a source of randomization for an HSM or something where uh, entropy is really important good quality entropy and no idea. But yeah, what, what they do is they, they protect your quantum computers, but I, I don't know anybody that has any. So <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. and not even so much as not, not even knowing who has any, cause I don't know anybody that has any either, but the real question is how's the output any different than non quantum compute a little faster, a lot faster. If that's the only difference, then who cares? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the attack surface is, so I don't know what the, you know, is it whatever interface that you use to, you know, for input and output to the computer? You know, I, I, I don't know enough about how quantum computers are being used currently to understand what they would be protecting and how. So, yeah, might be cool to have somebody like an expert on quantum. I, I actually have somebody in mind that I've been thinking about bringing on the show on, on, on the show to interview about quantum computing and where it's at and when we need to start worrying about security about them. But uh, Katie says it's too soon. So maybe we'll hold off on that. <laughs> well when, when we're ready, I do have somebody in mind. I follow somebody on maybe Twitter. Maybe in 2025. That, I don't know. I'm just picking a date a couple of years in the future. Yeah. So that one was interesting. Uh, hit us up if, if you have any insight into why there's more than a half a dozen quantum security companies out there and whether or not there's any market for them to, uh, to go after, we'd be, we'd love to hear about that. Um, so it looks like uh, firmware security has competition now. Um, um, Eclipsium. Uh, was really the only company that that I was aware of, aware of that was really hitting firmware security at the enterprise level. Uh, but there's another company now called, uh, and this is story number six, called Bi Binerly. I guess is how you would pronounce that. Um, raised a 3.6 million dollar seed round, and reading what they do, it sounds very similar to what the folks at Eclipsium are doing. They're doing their own research. They found a bunch of vulnerabilities in firmware uh, and they're building a product that allows you, you know, that gives you visibility of firmware security issues in your environment. Yeah, 
I think there were a couple companies that that are touching this space, but Eclipsium, you know, was the one I knew best as well. So, you know, they're an amazing company, um, but not bad to see some competition in the space because it's an important thing that I think is overlooked quite a lot. It's not the sexiest thing, except maybe to Paul. I don't know. Apologies, Paul, if I just <laughs> yeah. insulted your new job. Um, <laughs> but super important. And, um, you know, ho hopefully this gets a little more attention. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of things getting more attention, uh, apparently people forget and lose their passwords to their cryptocurrency wallets so there there's a company for that now uh, a company called bunker and i had a hard time understanding i i think they're selling to the companies who make the wallets and basically creating like some password recovery systems that you could use instead of just being screwed if you forget you know your private key your pin your passphrase however you get into your your cold wallet um very much needed because I, I and it, like Joe Grand, uh, Paul Asadorian was interviewing Joe Grand for a Hacker Heroes uh, segment that uh, w will be published sometime in the near future, and, and that's what he does now. Like like he started a, a consulting company that just tries to recover your Bitcoin and your cryptocurrency for you from the hardware wallets that you no longer know the passphrase for. So it's, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that this is a whole market now. Well, I think what's really interesting is think about it this way. If the only way that somebody gets to the point where they have tens of millions, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in cryptocurrency is to have bought it at pennies, you know, super early said, hey, yeah. let's throw a thousand dollars in this thing. Completely and then forgot lost, about it. Lost, <laughs> yeah. That's the only way you get there because everybody's got a price well before hundreds of millions of dollars where you will have sold that off. Right where you have said the risk is is just too great to to hold on to it indefinitely. <clears throat> so you've got all these companies, and I, I don't know the exact number. I'll, I'll throw a random number out there. You know, hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars of lost keys that are propping up Bitcoin and Ether and and sitting there, unable to be recovered, unable to be sold. People that have you know put a hundred or a thousand dollars in when it was you know a quarter of a penny or something, and Hey, so if you're Joe Grand, hey, you know what? Give me your give me your lost wallets that you don't have keys for anymore. If I can pop it, I get one percent. I get two percent, right? Some That's small exactly negligible fee. All I got to do is pop one of those wallets, and I'm set for life. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's interesting. I he mentioned uh, Joe Grand was actually releasing a video today. I don't know if that came out. Yes, it did. It came out earlier today. Hacking a Samsung Galaxy for $6 million. <laughs> it's a Samsung what? Galaxy phone with $6 million worth of Bitcoin locked on it. Wow. So let me, let me grab that and I'll, I'll drop that in, the, uh, in both the chats here. That looks like uh, his last one, like the production was great. He's got like professional crew producing these videos. Uh, well, Joe used to be on. Um, there are many movies. On Discovery Channel. He yeah, had his own show on Discovery Channel. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, definitely worth a watch. So that's something I'll, I'll save for later. All right, uh, moving on here. I'm going to run, do a bit of a speed run through some of the new products here. 
and uh, some of the news items here, and then I'll pause and we'll, we'll see if there's anything to discuss across them. But uh, speaking of attack surface management, uh, pops up again because IBM acquired Randori, which is uh, one of the more mature external attack surface management companies. Uh, looks like Aqua Security made a, an Aqua hire and uh, hired both Darkbit founders. I was not familiar with Darkbit. No surprise. It was just uh, two people, apparently. Uh, they're not calling it an acquisition or an Aqua hire, but, I mean, that's that's exactly what it sounds like it is. Uh, 1Password joined the FIDO Alliance. Uh, always good to see that. I actually use 1Password for my MFA in addition to using it as a password database. So I, I use it for authentication as well. So it's uh, interesting to see those two worlds kind of combining. Uh, let's see. Contrast Security made some of their, I think they have SAST tools, um, or, or the, were they a RASP vendor? Tyler would know the answer to this, but they made some of their tools Con free. Yeah, I don't know which tools they made free. Uh, I haven't dove into the article itself, but they they originally were a IASP slash RASPy style vendor. Uh, I think they added SAST and DAST over the years to become a more well-rounded platform. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure which components they're making free. Yeah, they call it CodeSec, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of details on what kind of a scanner it is. Looks like code yeah, code looks like it might be fast. Yeah. And serverless. Interesting. Does Java and Python Lambda functions as well. Cool. Yeah, Java, JavaScript.net. Yeah, so it's scanning static uh, stuff. Yeah. Cool. Uh, welcome, I'm sure. Uh, Rumble is is nuts. Um, the, the speed at which they add features to, to the product is crazy. I, I get the updates as soon as they do it because I used a free version. And uh, they've got a ton of uh, integrations now. So they integrate with, what was the latest one they added? So they've added Azure and AWS and Google Cloud so they can pull in all your assets from there. They can pull in all your assets from CrowdStrike and Sentinel One. And the recent one they added is Tenable IO and Tenable Nessus. Uh, so they can, they can grab that as well. And they've got some, the Mirador MDM platform and VMware in there as well. So doing a lot more than just uh, internal network scanning these days. Yeah, they're, they're, they're gunning for us, Tyler. Um, they're certainly mm -hmm. putting out a lot of information and updating their features. Uh, so it's great because that certainly validates the space and the need to not just identify what you've got and not just do it through one product, but look at it through an ecosystem lens um, and also understand, you know, the dependencies, the vulnerabilities, what the risk is, you know, all, all the things that Tyler and I talk and write about all day long. So yeah. they're, they're certainly making good strides in the space for sure. And they're not just getting um, asset data out of Tenable. They are pulling in vulnerability data, like the vulnerability description, CVSS score, the CVE number, mm -hmm. all that stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, again, that's that's becoming almost table stakes. You can't just have yeah. asset data without any 
correlation to vulnerabilities and it just doesn't make any sense because you know you, you look at everything you have and if you don't know where the problems are it you know so what so you have a bunch of stuff all right two more things and we'll wrap here uh there's an interesting open source cool tool called Anomark. This is my story number 17. And uh, I can't remember if this is linked to a company, but uh, French developers here, uh, what they've done is they've created something that can build a model based off of how... So we were talking about this a bit earlier. I, I think it was either Aqua or Twistlock or maybe both of them that would baseline your containers. And anything they didn't see run in while training it, they would not allow to run in production. And this kind of does a similar thing where you can train it on uh, on payloads, on, on command line data sets is, is what they're calling it. And I, I don't know, maybe you feed it bash histories. I'm, I'm not sure what command lines they're, they're looking for here. Uh, but if they see anything weird on the command line that isn't normal, uh, it can let you know. So I thought this is a really interesting piece of software that could be used in some creative ways, I think, in maybe like an XDR platform or something like that. Yeah, sounds like an interesting feature. Mm -hmm. And it's free. It's on GitHub. That's the best, best kind of features are the free features. Oh, I lied. There's... Still two more things I'm going to mention. Microsoft Defender launches for Mac OS, iOS, and Android in addition to Windows. So now everybody, everybody can run Defender. It's open for everybody. You can install it everywhere. Microsoft so it's eats now, the world. It's now cross-platform. And I do believe that's the endpoint security Microsoft Defender, not one of the other 24 Microsoft <laughs> Defender products <laughs> that I cannot keep up with or keep straight. <laughs> It's not my fault. Microsoft does this on purpose. All right, and our squirrel story for today is this lovely story of how Git became to be. Back in the day, Linux used... <laughs> story, <t> story time <laughs> with Adrian. <laughs> story time with Adrian. And so apparently, there's this product called BitKeeper that's uh, like a source control product and it was normally a paid product and there's no timeline in here so i have to assume this is in like the 90s like the very early linux days or at the very latest early 2000s um and bitkeeper gave linux a special deal gave linus torvalds a special deal to use their source control product for free and then at some point you know, they decided hey we're gonna have to start charging you and you know, they, they said, you're going to have to pay it like it would take you forever to build what we put together here. <laughs> and four days later, Git was born. <laughs> like Linus just built it, you know, in, in half a week and uh, and kicked uh, BitKeeper to the curb. And, and that's that's how Git was born. And it goes deeper. Uh, if you if you go through the thread a little bit, um, it's it's worth taking some time and, and reading through some of the additional items that he posts here. And this is uh, who is this? Swix. Uh, it doesn't say his name, but uh, S W Y X on on Twitter. But it's the it's the last story on the list. Twenty three here, and and it's a lovely read about how 
And BitKeeper's still around, apparently. Uh, same, same guy that uh, gave Linus the free deal back in the 90s or whenever that was, is uh, still around. Uh, he didn't take it too hard. <laughs> you know, GitHub sold to Microsoft for how much? <laughs> And they're still they're still like a thirteen person company or sixteen person company or something like that, but they're still around. Yeah, so I thought that it just goes to show you don't don't piss off the real smart people. Find a way to work with them, I guess. Yeah, I mean I it's uh, yeah yeah it was fascinating, but uh, yeah yeah good story to go check out. Um, and I that's about all we have for today. So, Tyler, Katie, thanks so much for joining me today on this uh, slightly shorter version, one segment shorter than normal episode of Enterprise Security yeah. Weekly. Hey, yeah. Well, it will be longer. There's enjoyed. another recorded segment, segment coming up. Yeah, but it doesn't have us. I know, but I don't want listeners to drop off and think we're slacking. Tyler's going no, to sleep. Exactly. He's slacking. Yeah, but... Yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I, I might have been, but you know, but fathead Tyler back here behind me was paying a lot of attention. So, exactly. so it's, it's all good. Big fathead head Tyler. Tyler is, thank you, Adrian, for story time with Adrian. That actually kept me energized, kept me engaged today. I appreciate story time with Adrian. Uh, big head Tyler is ever energized. He is. Ever He's always smiling. <laughs> always. Does it hurt him the way it hurts you? To smile, yes, constantly. <laughs> <laughs> He's in constant pain. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, we've got a pre-recorded segment from RSA where Chris Cleveland, CEO of Pixum, and Mehul Ravankar, VP Product Management at Qualys, will discuss stopping phishing attacks and a fresh approach to reducing cyber risk. And uh, But we're done for the day. That's the last you'll hear from us. So big thanks to everyone watching or listening to this week's episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. That last segment's coming up in just a moment here, and we will see you next week. Bye. DeepWatch helps secure the digital economy by protecting and defending enterprise networks everywhere, every day. DeepWatch leverages its highly automated cloud-based SOC platform backed by a world-class team of experts who monitor, detect, and respond to threats on customers' digital assets 24-7-365. Many of the world's leading brands rely on DeepWatch's managed detection and response. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash DeepWatch to learn more. Can your incident response technology collect from off-network endpoints? Xtero FTK Enterprise can. Endpoints are no longer located in a physical office, and organizations need a comprehensive investigation tool that enables holistic data collection and review. With FTK Enterprise, you can also scan for IOCs and MISP indicators. You can scan with Yara rules, and you can use integrations to trigger automatic endpoint collections. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Xtero for access to their white paper, Incident Response for a Remote World. Customers want fast and frictionless digital experiences, yet also expect protection against breaches, privacy violations, and fraud. Drive engagement by optimizing security and convenience to attract and retain customers. Use the PingOne cloud platform to build, test, and optimize digital experiences. The no-code orchestration engine weaves together authentication, user management, and MFA, all of which can enhance security, drive engagement, and boost revenues. 
Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ping identity to learn more. Welcome back to RSA Conference 2022. It's day three. We're still recording live at the Marriott Marquis. I am your host, Matt Alderman. Joining me for this segment is Chris Cleveland, CEO at Pixum. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Matt. Great to be here. Great to be back at RSA. Yeah, it was, I, was, uh, I was thinking that you and I had met before somewhere in person, and then I realized it was your co-founder. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I was like, that's how long it's been <laughs> since we've been at a physical conference. Yeah, like 2019 or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Um, so some new announcements this week around mobile. We're going to get into the technology a little bit. Uh, Matt Mosley was on earlier, talked more about the market challenges. Just give us a quick summary of Pixum's capabilities, and then let's dig into kind of how it works and also the new mobile capabilities that you just re- uh, just released. Sure. So Pixum is all about detecting and stopping phishing attacks uh, as they're actually clicked and opened in the browser mm-hmm. using real-time computer vision technology. So, you know, like Matt was saying, a lot of phishing activity, even though if I'm a CISO, I tend to associate phishing with email or inbox security. Right. But the truth is, is that a lot of the phishing at- activity is coming in through Discord, it's coming in through Facebook, it's coming in through LinkedIn. So by being able to stop attacks at point of click in the browser, it, it really doesn't matter where they come from, you're still stopping it. Right. Um, and like you mentioned, we recently launched uh, Pixel Mobile. So this is really about being able to stop phishing attacks on any device and any application, which is really where the wa- modern work environment is. Exactly right. I mean, I use my phone for everything. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to get a text message that has a link in it to say, hey, to check the status of your delivery, click this link, right? We're seeing more of those types of attacks. Mm-hmm. And that's going to render a browser yep. on my mobile device that is now a vector for a scam, right? And so, you know, there the mobile use case obviously is is a huge use case because we're seeing more and more mobile use, especially in a remote hybrid workforce. Yeah, we're really excited to be launching our first uh, mobile product on iOS and for iPhones and iPads. I mean, going back to 2016, the way the DNC was initially breached was actually uh, through Gmail on somebody's iPad. Um, so from the very beginning, there was a lot of motivation to be able to protect that vector. Yeah, exactly. So. How does it work? Um, there's a free plugin. Yep. There's a plugin. It goes into the browser. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you said it's computer vision technology. What was the term you used? Computer vision, exactly. So computer vision is a fancy word for software that can see. So humans and animals, we have this very well-developed uh, hardware in our brains. We can basically see uh, light in the real world. It hits our retinas, and we can interpret objects in the world. So you see software like this, um, you know, that's in Tesla vehicles, that's mm-hmm. being used to identify lanes, pedestrians, and other cars. We're putting that capability into the browser and now onto your phone so that if you open up a page and it looks like Facebook or if it looks, looks like Coinbase, but it's not from an authorized domain, we can give that user real-time feedback before they make a bad decision. Right. And I think that's the interesting part of the technology is even if I click the link, Yep. right? Now, let's say my spam filter filters out most of those. Mm -hmm. Some are going to get through. Oh, yeah. I click the link. The next point is to actually look at the page you're going to to see if it's a legitimate page. And if it's not, flag the user right there that, hey, wait, this looks malicious. Therefore, I don't put my credentials in there and now have the account takeover happen, right? Exactly. We're right there at that last line of defense when the page, a login page actually loads into the browser. So we're really right there as the payload is delivered to the end user, uh, no matter where that uh, link is clicked from. So of course, you know, we'll protect phishing attacks that are coming in through all these different channels. But you know, for a lot of our customers, what really resonates with them is like, hey, I'm already protected in my inbox, but I'm not protected 
from all of these other uh, channels where I'm being targeted. Mm -hmm. But once you deploy Pixum, you'll also maybe find that your inbox also wasn't as secure as you thought it was right, as right. well, because it's very easy to conceal the phishing payload. Like if you're a cyber analyst and you have a phishing link, you open up that link in your own browser, you're actually going to see a pet food website or you're going to get redirected to a 404. But what the end user sees is something totally different. So there's a lot of proxy aware technology now that's out there that hackers are using again and again. Right. And only if you're really right there in the browser observing the same payload that the end user sees, are you able to really stop it effectively. Exactly. So deployment is a plugin. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually run the free plugin because you guys have a free plugin in the browser and I've been running it on my on my Mac since you guys came yep. out um, a couple of years ago. So I run it on my machine. But what's the corporate use case now? So I have the plugin. All that data has got to go somewhere. So talk me through like what does the back end look like? How do people visualize and, and see what's going on across their employee base from all these different uh, browser plugins that have been installed? <laughs> Yeah, we have the free plugin that you know everybody's welcome to install on their devices and install on their parents' devices. It's always a good idea. For enterprise customers, what we enable is rapid deployment to an unlimited number of devices and centralized visibility into threat data. So I can see all of the links, the phishing links that are getting clicked within my organization. I can see which users are clicking on them. I also have information about the kinds of campaigns that are targeting my users. Mm. So I'm going to be able to see, is it uh, Microsoft phishing attacks that are targeting my people? Is my inbox security weak? Uh, are these phishing attacks coming in through Facebook? So I can really organize and search my data based on user, based on types of attack. Uh, the other thing I'll just mention here is the telemetry capture that we get. Going back to that point I made about the payload, yeah. you get to see the actual HTML and indeed the screenshots that are loaded into the browser. Oh, interesting. So you're able to see actually, you know, whether it's Coinbase, whether it's Fished, whether it's uh, Facebook, whether it's LinkedIn, we see you know a lot of business collaborations happening on WhatsApp. We've seen WhatsApp phishing attacks we stopped. Um, you get to see those that kind of browser layer telemetry in the back end, which is really helpful for a lot of our customers. So what do I do? So I've, I see the data coming in, right? Mm -hmm. You're creating your own threat intelligence data at Correct. the end of the day, right? I, because you're actually observing these attacks, the clicks, you're capturing the data. How would an organization then leverage that threat intelligence data? Are they going back then to their web and their email products and updating rules, et cetera? Like, do you see that kind of bi-directional um, integration with, with the other tools in the, in the environment? Absolutely, whether it's uh, URLs, whether it's IP addresses, sometimes it might be domains that you wanna add to your, your firewalls. Uh, you're, you're always empowered to do those kinds of things. Of course, with a product like this, um, you know, we're really going back to that paradigm of you can actually prevent and stop breaches from happening in the first place, which I know has kind of become an outdated way of thinking about it. But with these new AI capabilities, we're really revisiting that paradigm. So when you actually see something in the threat feed, you have that awareness, you have the kind of the users that are at risk in the campaigns. But the good news is, is that, you know, the credentials were not entered. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So there's always that uh, nice fact of being ahead of one step ahead of the adversary there. Yeah, but, because this has been a challenge for a lot of organizations, especially in a remote workforce environment, is when when your employees are outside of your environment right outside of your firewalls outside of your email protection yep. products outside of your web gateways etc how do you protect them yep. from all these ransomware attacks right because the first step is typically a phishing campaign take over an account so that they can install something malicious and then it goes from there right it's really difficult but this allows you to do it at scale, regardless of where the user is. And I think that's the interesting piece is by doing this and being proactive about it, 
it prevents the next steps in the kill chain, yeah. right? Which is where the where things get exploited and, and then spread from there. That's right. I mean, the, the browser and the device tends to travel with the users. And we make our extensions, our web extensions, very easy to install on as many devices as you want. So, you know, our pricing is actually based off per user, not per device. So on the one hand, you can deploy our enterprise product mm -hmm. to an unlimited number of devices using a centralized device management system. But you can also tell your employees, hey, do you enjoy working from home? You want to keep working from home? Yeah. You, do you like working on personal devices as well outside of our typical environment? We make it really easy to integrate those extra devices in as well so that you get yeah. that protection on any device and on any application. That's great because I use my Teams app on my phone yep. all the time when I'm on the road, mm -hmm. like this week, because I don't want to flip open my MacBook and it keeps rebooting anyways because of a bridge OS issue between Mac OS on the, on the task. So I don't even know if that machine will boot up. So I use my phone a ton. Yep. What if somebody sent me you know, a Teams link that happened to be malicious? I would never catch it on my mobile device unless I was running something like this. And, and that's, that's the employee world right now. That's right. And I think the attack landscape is already, the new attack landscape is already taking advantage of the new work environment. Right. They yeah. were doing it even before the pandemic, to be honest. Yeah, but they accelerated it. But it's, it's been vastly accelerated, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about uh, some of the ransomware use cases, right? Because we've seen a lot of news around these different ransomware attacks. Um, as you look at the data you're collecting, because you're collecting across, I imagine, all these mm -hmm. browsers, are there specific trends in these data sets that people should be cognizant of as they're out thinking about solutions like this? Like what are those big kind of three or four areas of real concern based on the data you're seeing by collecting this for your customers? Yeah, so a huge, over half of the phishing attacks that we're stopping are actually coming in totally outside of corporate email. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna be Facebook primarily, it's also gonna be LinkedIn. Uh, a huge amount of business communication is now done uh, on WhatsApp and on Slack. So the challenge there is, is that I really trust the people that appear to be sending me messages on these platforms. Right. So that means that if somebody I trust has their account popped on Slack or WhatsApp that I'm communing, uh, communicating with on a daily basis, uh, if they want to deliver me that ransomware payload, it's going to be extremely easy to do so. Interesting. So I think that's definitely something to be wary of. The other trend that we've really seen is that um, you know, folks are just working on personal devices a lot. So about 25% of the phishing attacks that we stop on our free browser extension that people are used for quote unquote personal right. use yep. are actually um, spear phishing, targeting their work email. So we've stopped phishing attacks at point of click on personal devices that are targeting industries in power grid, in um, pharmaceuticals and aerospace, um, all throughout the pandemic, in fact. So that was also a very common trend that you're seeing people doing uh, a lot of work on their personal devices. So making sure that people are secure. Uh, again, any device, any application, that's really our vision. Right. Are there parts of the world that are creating more of this type of traffic than others? Well, I mean, do you, you know, know? <laughs> it's it, it's really it's really hard to say. I think we we're we're, we're trying to hire more threat analysts right now because we have more threat data than we can currently deal with. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, we do have anecdotal cases of, for example, a Facebook phishing attack that was hosted on a Russian server. It hit. It was clicked by seven users over a five-day period, and that entire time, 90 out of 90 virus total vendors marked it as clean. So there's something about the combination of using this multi-channel. Um, mm targeting and also, you know, being able to uh, really conceal 
you're you're actual you know kind of you're, you're often breaching a, a, a legitimate page to host your phishing attack right and it's very very difficult to detect that payload so we did notice that hosted on a russian server who knows if it's actually the russians that are doing it of course but of course now it's right, a right. very hot topic yeah exactly <laughs> so, very very hot topic yeah um we just finished our email survey bill mentioned this earlier to to matt when they did their interview you know some interesting statistics out of there one was the rise in, in business email compromise. Yeah. What do you do around business email compromise? Can you, can you protect against some of that? Um, I'm just curious because it's a it, it seems to be a trending piece in the email security side. And how does Pixum potentially help on, on a business email compromise? Well, you know, we're all we're, we're really about that prevention step. So you know, the step before somebody gets their email compromised, we will pick up that fake Microsoft Outlook uh, login page Got right it. there at point of click. Okay. You know, so we'll really try and nip that in the bud. I think down the line on our roadmap, we're also thinking about ways to have language models and ways understanding how you communicate with your colleagues. So if somebody's communicating with you in a way that looks abnormal, we'll be able to stop that and prevent that too. In case they're trying to get you to, you know, wire money to some account. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, yeah. that's the biggest risk, right? right. And, and there's a consumer aspect to this too, because I think a lot of consumers who fall prey to this, they're not as, they may not be savvy to some of this stuff, right? That's right. So are, are, is there... I mean, obviously you've got the free plug-in. Is there a consumer play here? Or are you really still just going to target the enterprise because that's where a lot of this, um, that's where the, I mean, in a B2B market, we know where the money is. I'm just curious about the consumer play because I could see a consumer use case for this as well. Oh, 100%. I mean, we love users. We love stopping phishing attacks at point of click. So the more users uh, we have, the more phishing attacks that we're able to stop. We want to be on 50 million devices in three to five years. We want to be stopping thousands of unique phishing attacks per month. So to the extent that consumers can help us get there, right. uh, we love consumers. That's why we have a free version on the website. Right. Exactly right. Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Matt, thank you so much for having me. If anybody wants to learn more or find the free download, please go to securityweekly.com forward slash Pixum, P-I-X-M. Stay tuned. We have a couple more interviews left today. Good afternoon, everyone, or close to afternoon. Um, I'm Bill Brenner, VP of Content Strategy here at Security Weekly and Cyber Risk Alliance, and I am delighted to be here with Mehul Ravankar, VP of Product Management at Qualys, and we are going to talk about an important announcement that you had yesterday. First, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. How's the week going so far for you? It, was, it started hectic. It's now starting to slow down, so it's good. It's good now. Yeah, a lot of traffic, busy, everybody's making up for lost time. Yeah, and then it's exciting to see people in person finally. So yeah, it's, for sure. You know, it's good, exciting. So let's get right into it. Yesterday you had an announcement. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So yesterday we had our biggest major, I, mean, I guess the major significant update to our flagship product, VMDR, VMDR 2.0 with TrueRisk. About... Two years ago, around the same time at RSA, we launched our first version of VMDR uh, 1.0, and so we we took we took the lessons from our initial initial launch and included that into 2.0. So let me step back a little. Mm -hmm. So we when we launched VMDR 1.0 about two years ago, the the key um, thing we were trying to draw. draw drive was tool consolidation. So when we looked at the market, we've been in vulnerability management for over 20 years. You know, we've been building world-class vulnerability management products. And what we saw then 
was that you know customers had many tools but fewer solutions so they had like you know um, one solution for asset management one solution for uh, vulnerability assessment and detection a different solution for prioritization a different solution for remediation and response so we consolidated and you know these tools didn't necessarily talk to each other so we consolidated all of that into an all-in-one solution to discover prioritize and remediate vulnerabilities at scale and you know that helped us change the game on vulnerability management in terms of customers could ask questions to their infrastructure like you know how many assets do i have that doesn't have an edr agent like you know within like two seconds like you know scan every four hours it's you know it's kind of things that were not standard in vulnerability management which are standard now a f- uh, patch um vulnerability is faster than ever before almost 60 percent faster and so on um and you know that was a great release but as we came out of our first release you know we started to look at the market landscape and what our customers were telling us and the thing that we realized was uh, or it was very evident to us is customers were more focused on risk and less about vulnerabilities like everything every question that we were getting asked was how do i manage risk how do i reduce risk what do i do to close the gap between it and security how can automate things and and so on and so forth and they need there's a lot of pining for automating vulnerability management correct. so more time can be spent <coughs> dealing on the larger risk equation correct <coughs> so let's talk about that because um you know i've i've followed qualis for a long time um and <laughs> going back 15 years ago when i was writing about qualis as a journalist um in the context of here's the latest vulnerability here's a here's advice from qualis but the the challenge has always been prioritizing vulnerabilities okay. which one is most important to fix based on your own environment. Correct. So, uh, you know, obviously the the wish has been to make it less of a hand crank function, more automation. More automation. So talk about how VMDR.2.0, 2.0 with Trudis. Um so talk about how 2.0 really yeah. enhances that. Yeah, so you know, one thing that we saw was that the exploitation the speed at a speed of exploitation was really high like you know we i mean i don't know how many of you have gone through the lock for shell hell in you know yeah. december 10th 11th and 12th right yep. those 48 hours like mass exploitation across the board and so on and then we've seen trends like proxy log on and where the exploitation is like within few days right so it is very important to uh, prioritize prioritize based on risk so we took a very holistic approach to it and risk you know the concept of risk is very easy to understand but to implement is very difficult like it's very mm-hmm. multifaceted so for example you could have a vulnerability on an asset that is internal which is and a critical vulnerability but the risk is low but the same on the external facing asset you know it's actually a it's a big deal right um or you could have a vulnerability on a system but then you've implemented some compensating controls so that the risk of exploitation is really low like for example in lock for shell if you remove the gndi class file uh then the 
it, you know there is you know even if you didn't update the software it's still good no one is going to be able to exploit the software right um <coughs> uh what is you know same thing goes with the criticality um criticality of the asset like is it how what value does it provide is it like an you know import does it serve an important function in the organization or is it just a test so all these things have to be uh taken into account um as part of your risk equation so what we did is we <coughs> we introduced a few key risk scores into into the platform one was the asset risk score which is very transparent asset uh um transparent risk score which assess the the true risk of the asset for your organization so it takes into account for example the asset criticality automatically <clears throat> one of the one of our fundamental beliefs is if organizations have to manually set the criticality we have lost the game already you know if you have like 100 systems that's probably fine but if you're dealing with 10 100000 or millions of assets that's just not feasible right <clears throat> so we integrated with cmdbs to automatically bring in the business criticality for asset criticality right and that automatically drives the asset risk score we also take into account the vulnerabilities not just the vulnerabilities but the misconfigurations we found on it um or the location of the location of the asset and you know as more and colis has almost more than 20 applications on the on the platform and as more modules come online each module contributes its risk score for example we have an edr solution and if a malware event is found and there a asset has no vulnerabilities or misconfigurations that will still be a high risk asset for your organization because we saw something a malware on your asset so that was like that was the first key risk uh, it be introduced a score we introduced into the platform and the second thing we did was we did the same we took the same approach for vulnerabilities where you know historically vulnerabilities have been uh, prioritized based on cbss which is which is you know for a lack of a better algorithm is a good thing thing to prioritize like you know but it it always represented the technical severity of the vulnerability not the risk it poses to your organization right so we assemble one of the most comprehensive exploit and threat intelligence that is out there to to bring in more threat context for the vulnerability what is the exploit code maturity for this vulnerability is, is it weaponized can somebody just take it and run it and exploit in, in a compromised system or it just proof, proof of concept um <clears throat> are there malware or threat actors exploiting this vulnerability if so which ones are exploiting this vulnerability and we did in depth analysis like we looked at um all the 180 uh, the the universe of vulnerabilities is close to around 185000 vulnerabilities and we looked at all the all the you know we looked at all the threat intelligence exploit intelligence we have what we found out was there are close to about 4000 vulnerabilities that have exploit code weaponized but there are like 700 to 300 vulnerabilities that are, of those only 700 to 300 vulnerabilities are getting exploited by malware or threat actors so those are you know posing the highest and there is a even smaller number which is like you know the hall of fame vulnerabilities which get their own name like lock for shell wanna cry like heartbleed right as shell shock shell shock dirty cow like you know holy cow i forget what it is but yeah. right you <laughs> should get the point right so and you know if these things i'm having 2014 flashbacks <laughs> now and if these things show up in infrastructure you know these are like a sure shot way to show up on the first page of Washington Post and New York Times like if you get breached by these right. well known vulnerabilities so uh, so having that context and not not just that but like if vulnerabilities are getting exploited in the wild right now right so you give you so we provided that context to prioritize the vulnerabilities and then something that we did uniquely was um to to correlate that with the asset intelligence we have in terms of like we shared a mitigation controller a compensating control you know, on the system for that vulnerability we lowered the risk score um uh, for you so that 
you can focus on the real high priority um, items uh, in your infrastructure so the things that you've already taken care of you know deeper don't we're not saying don't do them mm-hmm. but what you're saying is you know you have a mountain of vulnerabilities to climb right you know but you know here's the real here's the real uh, vulnerabilities you need to focus on and then use those scores to build you know um compare the risk of a group of assets and how is my new york office doing versus my london office how is my finance team doing versus my marketing team so you can kind of gamify the system so that the teams and the the people who are responsible for those assets actually have a visual understanding of where the risk is and how they are doing compared to the rest of the organization right so they can actually and no one wants to be at the top of the leaderboard for high risk yeah <laughs> so so a couple questions i'll i'll start with um you know one of the things i'm always thinking of when a product update happens mm. especially one as big as this mm. i'm always thinking i i go into buyer's guide mode mm-hmm. you know because we produce a lot of those um if you are a prospective qualis customer and you're looking at this update mm-hmm. and you're thinking about diving in and making the purchase talk about the homework potential clients need to be doing before they come to you that will help them truly optimize this in a way that's going to be the yeah. best fit for their environment yeah i mean i mean the first thing is you know to quantify cyber risk and measure cyber risk and then uh, obviously you know once you're able to do it how are you tracking the risk reduction one of the key things we did with our release is also close the gap between it and security so one of the fundamental beliefs we have is is for vulnerability management to be done well three mm-hmm. key aspects have to come and converge people technology and processes so no matter how many improvements we make how many improvements we make to the algorithm or the risk client if the people and processes are not taken care of the the vulnerability management program will fail so we introduced we are also making sure that you know, there are silos between it and security are broken down so we introduced as part of the solution uh, integrations with uh, or applications on the service now store service now itsm so you can directly import calls findings into service now create tickets assign it to the right people close it out and the it teams can track their reporting and dashboards directly from mm-hmm. from service now so they don't have to log into calls you know they can track their sls directly so that that helps collaboratively work um, you know work collaboratively and actually reduce the risk across the infrastructure no more manual spreadsheets no more passing along pdf reports um, um yeah. and you know things falling through the cracks and the second thing we did is also empower the security and it teams to do more so you know with the rise in with the rise in vulnerabilities the number of people required to fix these things are not rising at the same rate right so you're you're expected to do more with less mm-hmm. right the only way to do that is with more automation so we're also introducing no code workflows we're introducing yeah, templates in our in our platform where you can quickly select our prepackaged templates like you know for example an asset it comes up in the cloud and has a high risk quarantine that asset you know apply some security groups on it without having to write scripts and do it because you know it's a completely uh, integrated solution like if for example um and this happens more on the cloud where assets come online they consume a callis license 
and then they go offline in two hours. Like you know, like ephemeral assets. Like ideally, you want to delete that asset as soon as it's gone. But you know, they stay in the platform because nobody actually executed the rule to delete that asset. You know, they, it costs money, and we're not. Uh, we tell, and, uh, you know, we tell our customers you could, you should, you know, implement purge rules and whatnot. You can automate this process. So event comes in from Amazon or AWS or Azure. Hey, I'm just terminated. You know, run this automation to clean up that account. Mm-hmm. So same things like that. So all of that helps our organizations. Um, you know, get uh, and all of this is included with the VMDR solution. So, so they get risk-based vulnerability management automation with our uh, integration with ITSM and then um, the no-code workflows to empower the security teams and IT teams to do more. So that's the real value uh, with the product. And the last thing we did was, you know, we built, (coughs) we amassed the most comprehensive exploit and threat intelligence as the product so that even if we don't have coverage for a vulnerability, we still have intelligence for that vulnerability so they can ask questions to call us what do you know about a cv like you know so, in so many situations where CISO comes and hey what's what do you know about the cv right so we can pinpoint we this is get this was this was the wild exploitation was seen on you know june 5th these are the malware families exploiting it these are the threat actors that are exploiting it and the exploit code is weaponized like you know all of that is all the 180,000 vulnerabilities that we have so a lot of value is packed into vmdr so that customers can do vulnerability management really well. Excellent. So we are, I'm getting the signal. We're out of time. I feel like we could talk about this for another hour or more. I mean, um, uh, if, if you have to talk about risk, I mean, you can but, talk for a month. <laughs> but I, I, w- I was just going to mention, just uh, reminding folks to go visit the Qualys booth. Are you in North, South? So, so uh, I would recommend than... I would recommend going to our website because that has all the collateral in you know, a college.com true risk yep. uh, t r u r i s k without the e you know our marketing was very hell bent on removing the e from true risk so mm-hmm. uh, that's fine uh, so college.com slash true risk um, everything that we talked about on um, all the product collateral the videos the data sheets it's all there and uh, they can learn more about the solution perfect. Thank you very much. It's it's been great. Same, same here. Thank you.